Hey, everyone. Here's a question for you. How would you react if the CEO of your organization asked you to move to a luxurious town that he or she was designing just for your company? Everyone from top management to the frontline workers would work there, but also live there, spending their free time there, shopping there, even worshiping together. Would you do it? Well, that's what happened in an area just south of Chicago in the late 1800s in a town called Pullman. Today, we'll learn about the fascinating history of this town and how you can experience it from none other than the executive director of the historic Pullman Foundation, Julian Jackson. I find Julian to be a really fascinating guy. His career has led him to create and manage a host of compelling cultural experiences and partnership with organizations that range from Saturday Night Live to NASA. His retelling of the story of Pullman will not only provoke new thoughts for you on these boundaries between living and working, but I think it'll also get you excited to experience Pullman for yourself. Enjoy our conversation today with Julian Jackson. Hey, Julian. Thank you so much for joining with me today. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, I'm fascinated by this topic that we're going to talk about, which I think is something that more people would find really interesting. But we'll, we'll dive into that momentarily. First, do you mind just sharing with me and our listeners a little bit about you and what you do? Yeah, my name is Julian Jackson. I'm the executive director of the Historic Pullman Foundation. Um, before coming to the Historic Pullman Foundation, uh, I spent many years uh, in the museum world, uh, initially joining the museum world, developing exhibits and experiences for museums. And finally, they kicked me upstairs to the executive director uh, group where I didn't get to do as many fun things, but did have a chance to shape some interesting organizations. That's awesome. What a fun way to spend your career. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Pullman um, and the, Pul the historic Pullman Foundation. Why don't we start with the person of Pullman? Uh, tell us a little bit about George Pullman, who he was, and uh, how we might remember him. So George Pullman was an American engineer and industrialist, um, and he is probably best known for uh, designing the Pullman sleeping car and the company that built that. Uh, he's also pretty famous for the town that he built, which was initially a separate town from Chicago, but eventually was absorbed uh, into Chicago due to some events that I think we'll dive into a little bit later. Um, he is also related with a number of really important American stories. He hired African-Americans right after uh, the Civil War, giving some of the very first um, really uh, stable, good jobs uh, to African-Americans, though they had their challenges as well, to the Pullman porters who acted as porters on those uh, same sleeping cars. The, those cars were luxury travel in the day, weren't they? Ba back in an era of railroads, being able to be in a Pullman car was kind of a special privileged experience, if I, if I understand it correctly. Absolutely. And Pullman's uh, North Star really was um, first-class luxury travel, while his company eventually diversified into other um, lines of business. 
that idea of really providing that vertical of luxury, the smoothest train ride, the best accommodations, the best service, the best food on those trains. That was, that was what Pullman was all about. Luxury was the watchword. It's, and roughly what years are we talking about here when he was creating this? It's, it's obviously well before the automobile. Yeah. So um, Pullman built his uh, famous town uh, in the 1880s. Um, his first sleeping cars were a little bit before that, and he ran that uh, business into the early 20th century. Um, and a very famous person took over for him after he died. Um, Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Lincoln, was the second president of the Pullman Company. So it is very integrated into the whole American story. It is. That's, I didn't actually know that. That's fascinating. What I've heard about Pullman cars, and you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, is that it was also a little different business model in that he didn't really sell these to the, the rail companies. He, did he effectively lease them or provide them as a service? That's exactly right. He wanted to have that control over the Pullman brand from top to bottom. Again, that watchword was luxury. He wanted to make sure that he was providing the best possible service and that nobody could break in uh, to that, that way of doing business. And so he wanted to control who worked in the cars, where the cars were built, how they were delivered. And he just worked out essentially leasing deals that he would provide the service um, attach it to other people's train cars. And so every train line basically had Pullmans. If they wanted luxury, they had to have a Pullman car and they had to do business with the Pullman company to do it. And it makes sense, I guess, that he would be in a place like Chicago, which was so central to those rail systems back in the day. And I guess still are. That's absolutely true. And sometimes when we talk about rail during this era, during the late 19th century, I, I, I like to use the uh, the phrase, it was the internet of that day. Basically, rail ran everything. The mail ran on rail. Mm -hmm. uh, this is before cars, and certainly, you know, the, the equivalent before this was the Pony Express, practically. Um, and so food ran on rail. The mail ran on rail. If you were shipping food across uh, the country, it ran on rail. And so if something happened to the railroads, you know, the whole country basically shut down. Mm -hmm. So interesting. So what led him to create a town? I know the concept of industrial towns were kind of a thing back then, but give us a little sense of, of how this came to fruition. So um, George Pullman uh, is arguably an idealist. Um, he would hate that phrase, but uh, I think it's probably accurate. He believed that by uplifting the living conditions of the workers, they would be better workers. Um, he would say that he was just a pragmatist, that he was just doing that, you know, all of his uh, building of a town and all of the elements of the town were, were, were simply business decisions. But I think that there was some real idealism in there as well, that if he built a town where he controlled uh he controlled the um, main source of business in, in terms of the factories that were there. He controlled the living uh, environment. He uh, eliminated some of the vices, so no bars or other things like that. The workers would have much better living situations than the tenements that were the typical living situation of uh, factory workers in those days. Would uplift them, suppress labor unrest, 
and just basically make better workers and more profit for him. Um, it was kind of a capitalist utopia. Uh, it, it really was. And he was trying to think of every angle to create this new model of doing business. That's interesting. So essentially that philosophy of providing the Pullman car and the entire experience was applicable here. He he wanted to manage that overall experience with, I guess, an eye towards maybe not luxury, but certainly a higher standard of living than, say, what was going on in the stockyards, which, if, if I remember right, aren't too far from Pullman, right? They're not too far. And, and you may have in your high school reading read uh, The Jungle uh, by Sinclair. You know, that that's not too far off of the alternative to the Pullman town, um, also written about Chicago in those stockyards as well. And you, you sort of mentioned about uh, the town being very similar to um, the train car, and, and that's right. He was working on this vertical integration model. He wanted to control every aspect of that and thought that he could maximize profits through that process. So the town, obviously there's a distinct piece of land, but tell us more about what he created in terms of buildings and experiences. You, you mentioned he went beyond just, I think, creating some structures, but really curated a, a lifestyle, so to speak. That's, that's true. Um, I think the proper terminology is that uh, Pullman created the first model uh, industrial community, a planned model industrial community. Um, and the historians I work with want to be, me to be very clear about that because there were other uh, model uh, company towns at that time. But this was a ground-up uh, thing. He bought 4,000 acres near Lake Calumet, south of Chicago, which was that railroad hub already or becoming that railroad hub uh, already. And he started with brick factories. You know, when we were talking vertical integration, he was going to build from the ground up quite literally uh, in terms of what that was. So he was going to make the bricks by which he was going to make the factory, which was going to bring the workers, and he was going to house the workers and build their towns. And the town of Pullman really was amazing. Uh, a very talented architect named Beeman, um, Solon Beeman was, was sort of his uh, co-conspirator in this, in this organized model town. And uh, you can still see it today that there are beautiful parks and gardens uh, built into this, um, this town. Uh, he put in sewer systems and indoor plumbing in these houses, which was a rarity in those days, especially in, in factory workers' homes yeah. and all places. And really, the homes were a much better living condition than you could get uh, in the tenements of Chicago at that time. Um, the city it's, or the town itself is built around the factory. So the factory is in the center. And unlike today where you'll find the uh, managers and owners of factories living fairly far away from the factories, the closest houses to the factories are the plant manager. And uh, you know the, the executives of the plant had their, um, had their homes right up next to the factory. And as you moved further away, the houses got simpler and a little bit more modest. Um, first, you know, established uh, skilled workers. And then as you moved further and further away, you'd reach sort of bachelor uh, heavy labor folks um, as you got further and further away. Well, many of the buildings are quite beautiful. Aren't they? I mean, they, they don't look spare uh, and just purely pragmatic, particularly those that seem to be more central to the town. They're, they're quite, quite stunning. 
That's true. I mean, there are some really amazing buildings. I shouldn't say there's some. All of the buildings are really amazing. Some of them are quite small for our per, our personal tastes nowadays. You know, we, we, we've expanded our footprints quite a bit in our housing uh, in most places. Um, I like to think of them as being very reminiscent of European housing, very close together, often in row houses, except for some of the managers, uh, uh, except for the plant manager's house. I think that's the only one that's standalone. Mm. Um, but uh, very beautiful, very well made. This is 130 some years later and they're all still standing up and people have done amazing things in those houses. One of the things we do as the Historic Pullman Foundation is we run a yearly house tour. So we get some of the local owners here to open up their houses and you can go inside and see some people have restored the, them to Victorian uh, grandeur again. Some have modernized them and done really interesting things with these houses that have, were built, you know, over a century ago and uh, modernized them in really way, cool ways. But that's always a great time, people being able to see the interior of those uh, houses. Very cool. There's a, a potentially a downside, though, to this approach that he took in that and you kind of alluded to it earlier, some facets of life were pretty constrained, I, I take it. Uh, he, he maybe wanted to control more of people's uh, living experience than maybe your average uh, business leader. Can you tell us a little bit about this idea that he had his own newspaper as an example, or I, I believe he had his own church or something, something along those lines? Well, everything. Everything was owned by Pullman, including the church. And uh, some... Uh, some journalistic wit at the time, and I'm going to forget uh, what the journalist's name was, but compared him to Otto van Bismarck, who was, you know, a tyrant at that time in Germany and said that Pullman exerted more control over the town than Otto van Bismarck did uh, over Germany. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, while he was a vis visionary, he was I think the words we would use today, a control freak. He wanted to control every single aspect. Um, and, you know, for the most part, the, the workers made that deal with him to come and live in better conditions than they might have otherwise. But that started to go downhill uh, in the 1890s. So the Columbian Exposition, this gigantic fair, um, came to Chicago in 1893. It was very exciting. Chicago was able to show off uh, all of these new buildings and, and museums and all of these things. And people would take the train south to see Pullman's marvelous model town uh, in 1893. But fortunes turn quickly sometimes. And in 1894, there was a big economic recession. And Pullman, in order to save money and uh, try to keep his business profitable for his investors, um, cut wages uh, for all of his workers. And his workers lived in his houses, but he did not cut rents <laughs> okay. or any other prices in the town. So the workers are getting very squeezed. Their wages are cut, but their rents are high at the same time. Mm. And um, conditions got worse and worse in 1894 until they finally led to the Pullman uh, strike, which is arguably one of the most consequential labor strikes in uh, American history. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, railroads being the internet of that age mm -hmm. and almost every railroad having a Pullman car attached to it. Well, 
there was a lot of sympathy for the uh, Pullman uh, workers. And this is really at the beginning of these broad-based um, uh, railroad unions. And so they called a general strike. And so railroad workers, and this spread across the country, refused to work on any railroad line that carried a Pullman car, which is most all of them. Oh, boy. It shut down the country. And this got worse and worse. There were people marching on Washington, literally, during this strike. Um, it was a crazy, crazy time. It eventually led to some violence. Uh, the National Guard was called in in several instances on the pretense that it was shutting down the mail, which is a federal offense. Hmm. Um, some people died in the process. Um, and arguably, the workers lost this strike. They did not succeed in getting their demands met, at least in the short time. But the whole country was kind of shocked at this, that both um, Pullman's and transients, and he was very stubborn through this whole process. He did not give an inch. In fact, his federal industrialists were like, dude, you, you got to dial it down a little bit. We're oh, really? starting to look bad here. Uh, but he did not give an inch. And eventually, you know, he fired the leaders of the strike. He, you know, he, he won for all practical purposes. But it had the federal government re-looking at this idea of... Um, he had the federal government looking at this idea of owning both the means of production and also the housing and also the buildings. And some new laws were passed to break up the town of Poland. Basically, they said, you can own that factory, but you can't own everything around it. Hmm. And that eventually led to Chicago uh, absorbing the town of Pullman into its borders. Do you have a sense of when the workers went on strike... Do you think it was primarily economic in terms of um, just not being able to make ends meet? Or was it also um, them pushing back against this kind of control freak uh, boss that had perhaps dominated facets of their lives? That's a really interesting question. It certainly wasn't the first time that uh, there had been little rumblings of unrest about this hyper-controlled environment. Um I, I would hesitate to say that it was one thing or the other, but I know that people were bucking under that amount of control prior to that point. Um, the flashpoint was certainly economic and the fact that people were saying they couldn't feed their families. Um, that'll make people pretty desperate. But uh, the, the discontent over that level of control coming from your boss um, was clearly an irritant as well. <laughs> And during the strike and during all this unrest, what was actually happening in the town of Pullman? Like, was it was that the epicenter or was it uh, maybe not as affected as other locations? You've obviously done a, a little bit of research into this. Uh, the town of Pullman really did not have the worst of the violence. It was often at rail yards where uh, where other workers were stopping train cars and strike breakers were sort of moving in there. Pullman was really an industrial town. I mean, it, it was the factory. And while there was tension here, while there were troops that uh, were sent to Pullman, that's not where the worst of the violence happened, certainly. Um, however, you know, folks at Pullman pulled together. Uh, and this is a characteristic of the town of Pullman even today. That, you know, people are amazingly 
um, resourceful and neighborly, and they kind of come together in times of crisis. Uh, and, you know, they were feeding each other. They were, you know, helping out if people's money started to run out. Uh, but it was largely peaceful here in the town of Pullman itself. Mm. So what happened with the town after all this? What, what, uh, what came next? So the Pullman uh, factory continued for many decades after that, as I said, under Robert Todd Lincoln's um, leadership. Uh, the town, the factories diversified over time. Um, but in the 1960s, the entire neighborhood started to experience another period of very rapid decline. Factories, including the Pullman factory, began pulling out facilities from the far south side of Chicago. And by the 1960s, the whole area down here on the far south side was slated for demolition. Um, so, you know, in, in the way of Chicago, they had decided, oh, that's the end of this part of town. We're just going to level it and start over. Mm -hmm. And that's where this, this creativity and resourcefulness of the community uh, starts to rise again. The community came together and said, um, look around you. This is amazing architecture. There are these incredible American stories embedded in this community. You can't just level this and start over. Um, and so our organization was born 50 years ago out of the local civic organization. So the civic organization really started this movement and they spun us off out of one of their committees in 1973 to really help organize this vision for saving the community. And they pulled together, they first got landmark status. Uh, uh, they, they started getting various landmark statuses, um, protection for the buildings. Um, these house tours started as a way to uh, generate money that would then restore some of the exteriors of these historic buildings. That was mm -hmm. the, the intent behind that. Um, our organization started running tours to bring people down and talk about the architecture, talk about the town, uh, talk about the labor strike, talk about um, uh, all of those things. Um, and uh, we started to buy up some of the historic buildings. Um, one of the major purchases that we made uh, to save it from uh, getting torn down was the Hotel Florence, an enormous Victorian uh, hotel, which still stands to get today. Um, we no longer oversee that particular building that has been passed to the state, uh, the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, mm -hmm. um, and they oversee that and are restoring the hotel. Um, but we do oversee a number of historic buildings in the community. And about eight years ago, uh, President Obama uh, designated after much advocacy on our organization's parts, plus many other partners in the neighborhood and elsewhere, designated uh, Pullman a national monument, defined the historic district as a national monument, and um, said that the National Park Service should come in and start helping to tell uh, these stories. And so on Labor Day 2021, we opened the new visitor center for the National Park Service here in the community. Uh, and then a couple years uh, forward, this just this past New Year's, um, I'm sorry, just last year on December 29th, President Biden signed uh, a bill from Congress 
Uh, a president can designate a monument, but they can't designate a national park. So Congress finally passed a bill to make Pullman a national park. So we are now Pullman National Historic Park. And uh, we work together with nonprofits like ourselves. We're the official friends group of the national park here. Mm -hmm. um, the state IDNR and some other private, um, private nonprofits that also talk about history and preservation in the community so cool to see the momentum like there's just new life and what's what's interesting to me is i don't know how many national monuments or national parks you can live in i mean this isn't just a museum you said you came from the world of museums but this is a place where people are living and and thriving tell us just a little bit about life in pullman today yeah that's really true and that's one of the things that i was most excited about coming to pullman is you know, cultural organizations often try to are, are in a process of trying to figure out how do we be relevant to the communities around us? You know, um, there is a reputation, sometimes deserved, sometimes not, of being a little ivory tower. You know, only certain people benefit from that or they're locked away downtown in a tourist district. This is a place where people live. Um, and really, the people made this national park, which is fantastic. Um, so uh, the town of Pullman today is a living, breathing, historic community. Uh, the buildings up and down the street are similar. Uh, they bear the bones, at least, of the historic buildings. It feels like no other place in Chicago. Mm. Um, I've heard this area referred to as the greatest concentration of historic buildings in Chicago. Um, and you can walk the streets and sort of see how it operated in the past. Um, now that the federal government is here, we have a great opportunity to bring some tourist dollars into the community. Uh, we're bringing new businesses back. Um, restaurants are going up. We have a hotel, new hotel going up. There are more and more festivals and um, opportunities for exhibits. We run an exhibit hall as well. We do tours. We partner with the National Park and some of our other partners uh, to do a variety of different events throughout the year. On May 20th and 21st, uh, we'll be having Pullman Railroad Days, which is just a fantastic opportunity to see all those historic uh, rail cars that are being brought into the neighborhood. Uh, we'll be having music and tents uh, where storytellers will be. Um, even NASCAR is going to make a, a brief appearance. You know that NASCAR is coming to Chicago this summer, so they'll show up here in Pullman as well. Um, and we're really excited to invite folks down here to learn about these amazing stories in the community and uh, appreciate the great architecture. It's, uh, it's really exciting for me to hear this. You know, I lived in Chicago for, for many years, and I'm a history nut and, and uh, love architecture and kind of discovered the story of Pullman. It was a long time ago now, probably 20, 25 years ago. I was always a little surprised that more people hadn't heard about it. But it's clear that there's such momentum now, that there's so much going on in the neighborhood and that you've created such an epicenter for people to go and appreciate this, that it's really exciting to me. I am a little curious, whatever became of the Pullman Company? I'm not entirely certain of the actual close date of, uh, of the Pullman Company, but I believe the last cars were built in the early 1980s. And the Pullman Company does not exist in any format anymore. It just basically disappeared. 
you know, the, the needs of the train industry have changed over time. Uh, at the end, Pullman was building cars for Amtrak, but that's our primary passenger rail uh, opportunities nowadays. But the Pullman name, while it has largely dissipated from our American consciousness, is a worldwide brand right now and means quality around the world uh, in a way that we've almost forgotten about. Um, I had an opportunity to go with my wife to Paris last year, and we stayed in the Paris Luxury Hotel in Paris. And so there's a, there's a whole uh, hotel chain called the Pullman Hotels, not associated with the company at all. They just wanted to take that name and sort of, you know, market off of it. It's become a generic term essentially for luxury. So there is Pullman luggage, there is Pullman hotels, um, buses, I believe in Italy are called Pullmans. Uh, it really is this brand name around the world in a way that we've largely forgotten. Yeah, it's almost like <laughs> the, the way that Kleenex has become to mean something very specific. In this case, it sounds like the um, the key values behind that brand have lived on. Although it's interesting that it's happened more so outside of the U.S. than maybe here. I take it those those Pullman train cars found their way back in their heyday well beyond the U.S. That's right. It did become an international company, and so you could find... Uh, you could find Pullman cars on most of the continents. As you're walking through Pullman, are there any places that are just particularly special to you? Oh, absolutely. Um, Market Square uh, is, as it may sound from the name, uh, sort of a central point in Pullman. Uh, it is this grand arched uh, roundabout with a big building in the center. Um, it, it has these Italianate archways uh, all the way around it. Um, it's a little difficult to describe. I, I invite your listeners to go online and look it up. Um, but it's just like nothing else in Chicago. It, it looks really cool. The building in the center of it was called Market Hall and used to be a bunch of little shops. Uh, it had arson a number of years past. Um, we own that building or, or that ruin, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, and are starting the process of doing public comment on what we should do with it, hopefully to rebuild it and restore it to the community in some format. Excellent. Well, I know you've mentioned a series of ways for people to engage in the actual town. I'm putting it on my calendar. That sounds amazing. How about uh, digitally? Uh, is there a website? How do, how do people begin to discover more about your organization or about the town itself? Well, you can always come to our website um, or one of our social media sites. We are the Historic Pullman Foundation on Facebook and on Twitter. You can find us easily there. Uh, our website is Pullman I-L. Dot .org that's for Illinois IL at the mm -hmm. end of Pullman. Uh, you can find us on Eventbrite. You can see a whole calendar of different events and tours and uh, lecture series and opportunities to come in uh, there. I also recommend that folks go to the National Park um, and see all of their events. We are very closely aligned with them and um, we also both 
the National Park and the Historic Pullman Foundation. We also try to advocate and uh, broadcast some of the other great opportunities that are happening in Pullman uh, with some of our partner organizations. Awesome. I got to tell you, I'm I'm waiting for a screenplay. I think this story, and, and maybe it's been told, but the story of the town and the story of uh, the strike and what's become of it could make an outstanding feature film. <laughs> it would be a great miniseries, I think. And, uh, you know, if anybody's listening out there, give me a call. I, I got <laughs> sources for you. One of the lectures that we're doing uh, this year is because the town is so preserved, we have been the site of many a movie backdrop. Oh, really? Um, and so uh, you will see us in the background of many movies, even though you might not know it. Uh, one that we share with your uh, hometown now of Grand Rapids is the the um, the train movie. Um, oh, Polar Express? Polar Express. Thank you very much. Yes. Mind blank right there. So uh, Chris Van Alsberg, who is from Grand Rapids, illustrated that in order to get models for uh, the North Pole, Santa's workshop, guess what town he modeled <laughs> the North Pole after? He came here. And so if you look at Santa's workshop, it is a the spitting image of the Pullman factory. No way. Yeah. And a number of other great movies have been filmed uh here in the community. There is a there is a building right across the street from my office that was the bar in The Fugitive. That, um, and you can see my you can see my office window out the door of that bar in the movie. I think I know the exact scene you're talking about. As a, as a former Chicagoan, I have seen The Fugitive many times. Many times, absolutely. Well, what a fun, fun job and a fun role. I think this is um, Kind of an undiscovered treasure. I mean, Chicago clearly recognized as one of the architectural epicenters of, of, of the world, but in particular with an eye towards modern architecture. But for anybody who's thinking about going and enjoying and learning about architecture, probably getting to, getting to Pullman seems like a must do, particularly given all the investment you've put into it. Absolutely. And it is a wonderful, welcoming community. The people here love the fact that other people love their community. Um, you cannot walk around the neighborhood without somebody saying hello or are you looking at that building? Let me tell you a story. So allow yourself a little bit of extra time if you come to Pullman. Awesome. Well, Julian, thanks for telling us the story of, of George Pullman and uh, the town of Pullman. And thanks for everything you're doing to just make uh, Chicago and our community a better place. Thanks, Ryan. Mm-hmm.